Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The thing about property is it's a very long-term game, whatever you're doing in property. And your goals will change over time. This is Property Investory, where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset, and strategies. I'm Tyrone Shump, and in this special episode of Invest Like a Pro, presented by Housefinder, we're chatting with property investor Simon Liu. We'll be delving into the topic of how to buy property like a pro. We listen as Liu gives us some expert advice that can help you make the right purchases at the right time, and much, much more. We delve right into the topic as he shares with us some personal stories from his clients that can relate to buying like a pro. Today, I wanted to talk about a particular client I'm currently working with as well, who has actually been quite successful in her own right, buying properties uh, over the past sort of seven or so years in the Sydney market. But when I actually met with her for the first time and we sort of did our initial strategy session, talked about the type of properties she bought and how she bought them the more I started to realize that a lot of the success that she's had has come largely by accident. I mean, obviously, but, you know, she's done the right thing by taking action and, you know, just, uh, I guess, in, in many ways, just going for it. But the reality of it was every single property that she's bought thus far has been driven by a fear of missing out, which was quite common in the, in this, during the Sydney boom period we had in the past few years. What time frame was this? This was only within about five years' time, she managed to accumulate six properties in Sydney. She was very gung-ho, she just went for it, all guns blazing, and she bought a mix of properties, you know, from one-bedroom units through to three or four-bedroom houses in suburbs. And as we all know, in Sydney, if you bought four, five, six years ago, seven years ago, you could have just thrown a dart at a map and you'd make a lot of money out of it. Before he continues about his client's story, we learn more about her background and get a better understanding of her situation at the time. She is married. She's recently just had a, uh, a little baby as well. But um, she's always wanted to create wealth, you know, just from her background, from her family. Um, you know, it's kind of always been driven to accumulate assets rather than liabilities. And she, in terms of age, she is in her 30s. Um, she's been working, you know, a steady nine to five job, earning around about 100K for quite some time. Um, her partner works as well. So a very typical young family, I guess, a couple who recently gets married around about 30 years old, which is, I think, the norm nowadays for most people. And yeah, you know, she's, uh, she, she worked hard to save up her deposits. Um, as she was buying these properties, the boom kept going, as we all know, and she found herself in a position where she could access equity within 12 months 
of each property. Again, just purely by luck. So, you know, for her, it was kind of just a big roller coaster ride, really, you know, just buying property, the properties went up in value organically. She accessed the equity, bought her next one, bought the one after that, bought the one after that. The problem, however, is in Sydney, the cash flow position with pretty much any property you buy is really, really bad. You look at two, three percent if you're lucky. And if you buy really far out, then you might be getting, you know, around maybe not even four percent, but around about the four percent rental yields. Yeah. Council rates, insurances, uh, vacancies, uh, you know, maintenance, like all these type of stuff adds to or, or takes away from your cash flow. She didn't even sort of consider any of this. You know, she didn't keep spreadsheets on you know, her, her income and, and her cash flow. She was just in a whirlwind of accumulating as quickly as possible, thinking that more is better, which in many ways it is. Quantity is important, but, you know, as we all know, we also need to buy the right type of properties. We also need to, you know, do our due diligence and do our, our research on properties to make sure that each of them do not have any red flags or have uh, investment potential in the future. Um, but she didn't do any of this, which which was saved, as I said before, just purely by organic growth. So some of the things she went wrong was, you know, even she admitted now that looking back, she paid more than what those properties were worth when she bought them at the time. She didn't care about cash flow. So, you know, currently she's uh, in a position where the uh, her properties are significantly negatively geared. Uh, and it, it is putting some pressure on her weekly finances, monthly finances. What kind of numbers are we talking about in terms of negative cash flow? Look, I didn't really get into specifically how negatively geared her portfolio was, but she was at a point where she was at the max of what she could afford based on her living expenses, her income and all that type of stuff. And clearly as well, from a serviceability perspective, she's finding it difficult to obtain finance to move forward onto her next property and the property after that, which is a byproduct of just you know, not really doing your research and not really having a goal, having a strategy in place to continue accumulating, you know, even your first, second, your third, your fourth, your fifth property. I mean, she's had six properties now, but, you know, moving forward, her next steps will be crucial for her to either continue investing or maybe even potentially needing to sell down because she might find herself in a position where it's just too risky or the cash flow is just too bad for her to not be able to hold on to these to these properties. One of the mistakes that she admits to making again was, you know, overpaying for those properties, um, not doing research with comparable sales, um, going on gut feel, you know, based on how she feels about uh, whether a property is in a good location or um, whether she might want to live in that property. And it was kind of all over the place in the sense that, like I said, you know, it was a unit here and a house here and different parts of Sydney as well. Um, so yeah, you know, when she reached out to me and we, we looked at, you know, what her current properties are at and, and where she wanted to go to, you know, she needed to really focus more on the, not only strategically, but working on finding the right properties, uh, negotiating on properties that from a more professional investor level, if that makes sense. Sometimes it is simply a lack of knowledge on how to buy and what to buy that can lead to these mistakes. He talks about how he was able to help his client build a stronger portfolio. In Australia, we all grow up with the notion that buying a property is all about how you feel, you know, whether you're comfortable. And that's fair because, you know, nobody teaches you growing up that you should buy a portfolio of properties to set you up, you know, for early retirement or an easier retirement or create a passive income stream, whatever it is. So. 
you know, it's not like an error on her behalf. Um, I think it's just perhaps a, a lack of education at the end of the day. So, you know, when she reached out and, and when we started looking for her next property, um, she was surprised by the type of research that was required, um, the amount of uh, analysis on, on data, um, on numbers, you know, what a property is worth, what you pay for it, the cash flow involved, what you can do to it, looking outside of a backyard as well. Um, you know, so, you know, timing the market, you know, if a prop, if a, if a market's experienced a huge boom, you know, what are the chances of that happening again in the near future? Uh, so kind of, you know, diversifying your funds into other states to reduce things like land tax and, you know, increasing cash flow as well. And she also got a feel of the importance of having a great team around you when it comes to uh, negotiating. You know, the, the subtle nuances of, of timing, you know, what to say and what not to say, you know, how to communicate with agents. Um, we both agreed that if she applied this knowledge to her previous deals, she would be even better off financially and most likely would have much more properties under her belt at the moment and, and be able to, I guess, hold on to those properties, you know, draining her back pocket without really impacting her lifestyle. We find out about how you're able to turn your portfolio around if you are in a similar position and getting your portfolio to work for you rather than you working for your portfolio. Well, the first thing to consider is your priorities. You know, if cash flow is your priority, then you need to focus on properties that will bring in that cash flow, whether from day one organically or whether you can do something to it, add value to it to increase the cash flow. You know, if you wanted great cash flow, you wouldn't buy, for example, a inner city one bedroom unit where regardless of whatever you do to it, changing walls, carpets, kitchen, bathroom, you're still looking at a one bedroom unit and there's always going to be a ceiling on how much rent you can get. Um, you may, for example, want to look at a property further out. You know, if you must buy in Sydney, obviously areas further out in Western Sydney areas, um, you know, houses with decent blocks of land, houses you can add value to by adding extra rooms or bathrooms or living areas or, you know, powered sheds and things like this that adds to the cash flow from over and above what you would normally get from day one. So that's the number one thing. Um, don't be afraid to look into state. You know, I think a lot of people have a, a love affair with, um, with, with cities or, or with their own backyard um, especially during or after a growth period. They have a lot of positivity about the market that they're in. But the reality of it is that, you know, all cities go up and down in cycles, you know, in terms of the property market. So if you're in a city or if you're if you're in looking in an area where there's has been a recent price growth or boom, then it is more than likely that the rents haven't caught up yet. So you might want to look at another city or another area where the boom hasn't quite happened yet or is just happening now so you can kind of ride that wave instead so you know diversify and looking outside of markets and i think that one of the other things to really focus on as a i guess you know quote unquote professional investor is negotiating you know your negotiation skills you know by negotiating well you can instantly increase your cash flow immediately just by getting a lower price and the nuances of negotiating really comes from practice, but also comes from knowing what the drivers or what adds value to either the seller or the selling agent. 
so knowing these things, knowing what to say, knowing what questions to ask, knowing when to hold off, knowing what to offer, all will impact your bottom line at the end of the day. So just being a little bit more strategic about it, being less emotional, like I mentioned, and um, you know, having all those elements together will, will kind of put you in a better position to buy properties that are more conducive to your goals. Lou shares how it can be advantageous to buy distressed properties and why he focuses predominantly on these. Distressed property, like 95% of the population that sell a property want to achieve the highest price. You know, 5% don't necessarily have that as the priority. Everyone wants the highest price, but maybe there are that 5% that has a more pressing issue. So like anything in life, you know, anything that's distressed or anything that needs to sell urgently, you'll get a better deal on. And a better deal in the property world just translates to a lower price. You know, so the benefits are, are huge. You know, I mean, if you go to the supermarket and you buy an apple for a cheaper price, that's great. But for a property, you know, you can potentially, you're essentially making money from day one. So focusing on distressed properties is a really good way to not only reduce a lot of risk, but also to increase your cash flow just by buying well, um, increasing that uh, rental yield and giving you a ability to uh, use that equity that you've got immediately to jump onto the next property and the property after that. Coming up after the break, we'll delve into setting goals and how to achieve them. If you start with your end goal in mind and you work backwards, it's not difficult to figure out the type of properties you buy. The impact that gentrification can have on areas and property values. Things do change over time and you know, obviously we're talking extremes here about inner city suburbs where naturally they would gentrify just based on you know population demand and everything like that. And that's next. I'm Tyron Shum and you're listening to Property Investory. We find out more about what else he's looking at as a professional when he's purchasing a property. Stick to your goals, 100% stick to your goals. Make sure you have a goal in place. You know, there's so many avenues to go down. Everyone in Australia is an expert in property, whether you're talking to a property expert or your next door neighbor, they've all got an opinion. And everyone starts off with different circumstances. You know, you'll find some people who have had exceptional success in commercial properties, in developments buying off the plan, buying house land packages, but everyone maybe came from different backgrounds. You know, some people start off with a large amount of capital, inheritance, whatever it may be. Some people might be limited in their borrowing capacity. So figure out what your goal is. If your goal is to achieve a certain level of passive income within X amount of uh, years, you need to buy properties that only help you get to that goal. If your goal is to, in 10 years time, end up in your dream house, waterfront somewhere you know then whatever property you buy needs to work towards that goal and if you start with your end goal in mind and you work backwards it's not difficult to figure out the type of properties you buy and also the priorities in what you need to have from a property you know so if your goal is for example to achieve passive income you know maybe one bedroom units that have a certain level of lifestyle to it in a city may not be suitable to that particular goal so having that goal is so important the second thing is just really fine-tune your negotiating skills don't be too emotional when it comes to to buying properties um, you know you're buying basically as an investor you've got thousands of properties to choose from 
versus the selling agent they may only have one property to sell so if you feel like you're going to miss out on it just keep going just walk away and move on to the next one he shares some advice on the best way to remove your emotions from a deal no matter the level of attachment you may feel towards the property I was actually privy to that kind of trap as well when I started investing because everyone starts off with a certain level of comfort you know most people like they live up they live in an environment where they might be comfortable with and and when they see a property that may not be the same level of comfort that they're used to then they might write that property off completely so one of the things that i use is okay i'm working towards a goal of making money making money at the end of the day or at the end of the goal will obviously translate to a better lifestyle and when you're at a better lifestyle you might be able to afford a nicer house to live in for yourself so for me what i actually did to help out was i actually went out to physically look at properties that I would want to ultimately live in, not properties that I want to live in now. And that kind of sets your reality, it sets the precedence because that's something you're working towards. And when you're looking at properties today to invest in, you're kind of thinking, oh, you know what? I don't really need to uh, look at it from I want to live in it kind of eyes because I'm working towards something better. Again, just making that goal more real by seeing it physically or making that better lifestyle more real by seeing it physically can sometimes help you stay on track. We delve further into some of the key components to look at when you're doing your due diligence when researching a property. The fundamentals should always be ticked, in my opinion. So the fundamentals should be, okay, you know, the location. You know, even though we're not after specifically, you know, within 15 minutes walk to station, it doesn't necessarily need to be north facing. It doesn't necessarily need to have an open floor plan or um, all these amenities that you would normally look at from a, you know, living in that property perspective. You still want that property to be, you know, in a built up area, a property that is surrounded by good infrastructure, has access to amenities, you know, has government spending, people want to live there. You know, there's a lot of, I guess, future growth potential. We also find out about some of the properties that he has been recently looking into and what kind of research he has been doing. In Brisbane, for example, where I'm currently, uh, you know, focusing quite a lot of my efforts in, you know, there are certain pockets where you'll notice a immediate drop off in, in terms of median prices. What I mean by that is anywhere close to the city is always going to be worth more money. And then the further you go out, the median house price becomes a little bit lower, a little bit lower, a little bit lower, a little bit lower. Where it gets interesting is, you know, where a suburb is, let's say, for example, the median house price is $500,000, but literally the next suburb up might have a median house price of $400,000. So a significant drop, you know, without going to specifics of, you know, actual suburbs or anything like that, you know, these are the kinds of areas that I focus a lot of my, um, a lot of my energy in and I'm buying heavily in because... If you look historically, during a boom period, it's always these lower price suburbs that catch up in terms of price that close the gap. It doesn't really go backwards. At the moment, like, you know, with the clients that I have at the moment that I'm working with or the kind of properties that I'm buying are all in these kinds of areas. So it's sort of like gentrification. Is that basically what it is? Sort of like, you know, one of the main suburbs that have already sort of had a little bit of growth, but the surrounding suburbs are still yet to move. And when the time does happen, it booms and it goes up at the same time. Yeah, definitely. Like gentrification, you know, people, it, it's affordability at the end of the day. You know, like if if people can't afford a particular suburb, they're not going to move eight suburbs out 
they're going to move to the next affordable suburb. And when you get a lot of owner-occupiers filtering into a suburb that was maybe traditionally more investor-focused or maybe traditionally more sort of uh, lower socio or had a bit of a stigma attached to it, that new demographic will automatically gentrify that area because no one wants to at least admit to living in an area that's not uh, not nice or anything like that. It is amazing how properties in an area can rise in value because of gentrification and there have been numerous examples in recent history. It's ridiculous how that can change, that lifestyle you know, can completely change and even more recently areas like Redfern, you know, if we're talking about Sydney, you know, has always had a lot of housing commission, there's always been a, a bit of a negative stigma attached to it. But after this recent boom, getting into Redfern is, is a goal for even some of the most wealthy individuals out there. You know, looking at areas like most of the inner west, Balmain, you know, Birchgrove, Lilyfield, like they were all very sort of working class kind of kind of areas. But over time, that's it's all changed to more, now they would consider it more kind of characteristic, more lifestyle kind of areas. So things do change over time. And you know, obviously we're talking extremes here about inner city suburbs where naturally they would gentrify just based on, you know, population demand and everything like that. But even if we're, if we're talking about Sydney and what's happened recently, you know, there's a lot of areas that are out west that have completely changed as well. Like I remember when I started looking in areas like Blacktown, a lot of investors, you know, most of the demographic, it was very kind of blue collar, working class type of areas. But after this boom, it's now middle class. Like, you know, a lot of yes. people that work in the city, they, they live in areas like Blacktown and they catch a train in the city to work every day. It's also helped by, you know, maybe certain demographics as well. Because what happened in Blacktown was there was a large influx of um, uh, Indian population moving into there. It was affordable. They were, you know, new to the country, you know, they're looking for a place to just start off and sort of start their life in, in Australia. And they all moved to areas like Blacktown, Quakers Hill, Seven Hills, you know, Duneside, Maryong. It became like a bit of a hub. So that's another thing to also focus on as well is kind of noticing the trends on where certain cultural groups are moving into. And that can also have a, have a big impact on property performance as well. Regular investors may not have the resources that a professional does, so we learn about how you can research into a sudden influx into an area and use it to your advantage. It comes from many sources. Most of the time, it just comes from being close to the ground as possible. You know, you speak to agents, you look at trends. If you spend your weekends going out, looking at properties, you know, you'll notice just by, you know, going to an open home in Blacktown, if most of the people that are walking in looking at houses are of a certain ethnicity, then you kind of you know, get a gist, you look at the shops, local shops, you see, you know, maybe using this same example again, maybe Indian supermarkets popping up. These are just like the telltale signs. No one really sort of sits there and tells you or you know, writes articles about, oh, you know, every or most of the Indian population is moving into a certain area or anything like that. So you kind of just need to basically invest a lot of time into it, having a bit of common sense as well. You know, so I think that's probably where it's basically one of the only ways to find out. But it's also one of the hardest ways because, you know, obviously not many people have the time to be able to do that level of due diligence. One of the biggest advantages you can gain from having a professional buyer's agent in your corner is time. So that's one of the reasons why people do engage buyer's agents to help them find properties. You know, amongst many, like we talked about before, you know, negotiating, buyer's agents spend every single day talking to agents, dealing with them, uh, negotiating on building and pest reports, um, you know, analyzing the pros and the cons of properties, areas, streets, everything. 
and yeah, it can it can certainly help you save a lot of time and energy, you know, doing it yourself. But more importantly, I guess a, a buyer's agent's role should actually add real value in terms of finding you investment grade properties that are conducive to your goals. Setting goals is so important, not only for yourself to know what you want to work towards, but also for a buyer's agent so they know exactly how they can help you. Whenever I ask anybody what their property goals are, most of the time they tell me that they haven't thought about what their goals are. So the thing about property is it's a very long-term game, whatever you're doing in property, and your goals will change over time. So the goals that you're starting with from day one doesn't necessarily mean need to be 100% correct because if your goal is, let's say, to have $100,000 of passive income, within 10 years, by the time, if you do get to $100,000 of passive income within 10 years, you'll have a completely new set of goals because at that point, you'll be so much more confident, you know, in property investing, you'll know exactly what to look for. You'll have a very strong team of people around you, a lot of experience. You'll have also a completely new comfort zone. So, you know, whereas if you buy your first property, you spent, you know, you're obviously a little bit anxious and you're a bit nervous, you're not quite sure. By the time you're buying your 10th property, it's, you can make that decision within 15 minutes, you know. So my advice would be, okay, when you first start, your goal doesn't need to be 100% right, but it needs to be in the right direction. So if you think about where you want to be from property, whether it's ending up in a waterfront mansion at some point, or whether it's to achieve a certain level of passive income so you can quit your job or start that business or, you know, go travel around the world, whatever it might be, just have that as the goal. You know, okay, I want passive income. How much do you want? Oh, I'm not quite sure. Okay, what do you earn now in your day job? If you're earning 80K a year and it gets you by in life based on your own lifestyle, let's just make it 80K a year. What time frame? Oh, I don't know. Maybe, you know, I don't know what would be uh, realistic. Well, there's no realistic. I mean, there's people that out there that achieve their goals within one year and some can take 10, 15 years. It really depends on the individual. So, you know, but if you want to create, let's say that 80K or that 100K goal within a 10-year time frame, then you just kind of work backwards from there. So, you know, as a really quick example, 100K works out to be about 1500 bucks a week after tax. And, you know, let's say on average, a property brings in 400 bucks a week in rent you know, on that basis, you need around about four properties fully paid off for you to achieve that goal. You need to have some sort of goals in place in order to start your journey and be heading in the right direction. Now, four properties fully paid off doesn't necessarily mean you own four houses fully paid off. It might mean you have eight houses half paid off. You know, if your goal is to have four properties paid off within 10 years, maybe you need to get to around 10 properties during that time frame, so you have the opportunity, if you're buying well, if you're buying distressed properties with or you know initial equity, um, or if you're buying properties that have experienced some growth within that 10-year time frame, you might be able to sell down some of those initial properties to offset or to pay off you know initially one property, and then from there you go to two properties, and then the third property, and then your fourth property. And if you break that down, then your goal is 10 properties in 10 years, then you need to buy one property a year. It doesn't need to be consistently one property a year, 
It might be one, two properties a year and then no properties a year after, depending on the economic environment, your personal circumstances, you know, the, the, the financial environment in terms of how you can borrow money. But that's your initial goal to track towards. So that's, that's one side of the equation. The second side of the equation is the type of properties you need to buy. So, you know, if you're buying one bedroom units in Sydney, and by the way, I've got nothing against one bedroom units in Sydney. I, I just don't think they make very good investments, but, uh, you know, I'm sure people buy them for their own reasons. But if you buy one property units in Sydney that may only return 2% or 3% rental yield, talking about, let's say, an average person on an average income, there's no way you're going to get to 10 buying those types of units because the cash flow is just not going to get you there. You're just going to run out of serviceability possibly by the time you get to three or four. You know, you need to buy properties that will help you get to your next property and the property after that and the property after that. You have to think long-term and you have to also work out how you're going to do that from a serviceability and from a banking perspective. You know, the first two properties you need to buy might be with this certain bank and then you might need to extract equity from them to go to this bank and the bank after and, you know, Coming back to what I said in previous sessions, having a good broker by as part of your team is super, super important. I think what a lot of people don't realize is, you know, by the time you reach five properties, your goals are almost 100% going to change. By the time you've got that first, you've sold that first property and you've got that next first property paid off, your goal will change. And it'll change for the better. You know, you might become a bit more ambitious. You might be thinking, you know what? 10 years is actually a very long time for me to achieve this goal. I mean, at this rate, I'm kind of tracking towards my goal within a six-year period or seven-year period already. What can I achieve in 10 years? You know, so you start thinking outside the square and you start thinking, okay, you know, I've got five properties now. I've got a certain amount of equity behind me. I've got a little bit of cash flow. It's not 80K, but that might enable me to get into more sort of risky investments. Uh, By risky, I mean... You know, it could be commercial properties or could be maybe, you know, small subdivision type properties. It's a journey in that sense. But starting that journey, you need to, again, just work backwards from whatever goal is swimming inside your head, whatever you want to achieve and and kind of work backwards. Thank you to buyer's agent Simon Liu, our guest on this special episode of Invest Like a Pro presented by Housefinder. Also, for being a loyal listener of the podcast, I've asked Simon to offer a free one-hour strategy session normally valued at $500 to help you put together an actionable property plan. To get your free strategy session, simply visit housefinder.com.au and fill out the contact form or call Simon directly on 0415 626 342 and quote, property investory.